Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, our experts talk about the process of finding, vetting, and hiring senior institutional leaders. You'll hear from two of the top recruiters in the nation, both of whom specialize in the higher education sector, about why promoting or recruiting your next university president is one of the toughest tasks higher education institutions of all types are facing today. Give these folks a listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Hirsch Steinberg and I'm Managing Principal. One of the perks of my role is I get the opportunity to work with and learn from higher ed leaders from colleges and universities across the country. And one thing I've seen and heard from so many of you is that the job of a university president or chancellor has just grown more difficult and more complex than ever has been. Turnover rates among university leaders are at an all-time high. As we've seen in the news recently, the process of finding, recruiting, and hiring a successful leader is really one of the toughest tasks higher education institutions of all types are facing today. With that in mind, and with me today, are two of the top recruiters in the country. I'm excited for today's session, both of whom specialize in helping higher education institutions take all the necessary steps to develop the right list of candidates, work their way through the vetting process, and then create the conditions that set the candidate up to succeed. With that, let's start with some introductions. First up is Jay Lemons, an individual that I've gotten the chance to work with recently through EAB's Future President Intensive. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Jay, would you mind introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit more about you and your role? Well, good afternoon. Thank you very much, Hirsch. Appreciate the opportunity to be a part of uh, uh, this program from EAB, uh, an organization that uh, as it all came together, I will tell you, I was uh, proud to be the president of Susquehanna University. Um, and uh, we were uh, an EAB institution. We were a royal institution and we were a, uh, uh, um, um, uh, a Jim Day uh, client. So sure. uh, all three pieces of, uh, of the triune that uh, um, I'm going to appreciate all that EAB meant to me as a president. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a native Nebraskan. Um, Ken, I'm going to let you know that uh, I, too, am a college track athlete. Um, I was a D3 guy, not, not a talented decathlete like you uh, uh, were, but uh, a big part of, uh, of my life and, uh, and, and, and growing up and continues to sort of in some ways define how I think about the world. Um, I had the privilege as a very young man to spend eight and a half years as the chancellor at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Um, did my PhD at UVA and ended up working for uh, President John Castine there. And, um, um, and John said, someday I'm going to ask you to go do something. And I uh, could never have imagined it would be uh, spent six to nine months in Wise, Virginia, uh, that turned into eight and a half incredibly wonderful years. And uh, from there, I uh, was uh, invited and answered the call to serve Susquehanna University and uh, uh, a wonderful liberal arts college in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, where I spent, um, I got to preside over 17 commencements. So a total of 25 years in, in the college presidency and, and was not imagining another life or chapter, sort of had a sense that I might have another chapter, but didn't have any real directionality and uh, uh, a very um, unusual, unique, um, uh, I often call us the Academic Search, the original disruptors, uh, an organization founded in 1976 at a time when 
no one in higher ed used um, uh, search organizations. And um, uh, academic search was founded on a belief that uh, formers and leader, former leaders in higher ed might have something to offer um, institutions while they were found themselves in times of transition. And that organization uh, uh, approached me about the possibility of, of, of serving it. It's an organization owned by the American Academic Leadership Institute, and um, there's no private ownership for us. Um, uh, we're a mission-based organization, um, and our marginal revenues go to support our parent organization, obviously, but also the Council of Independent Colleges and the American Association of State Colleges and Universities. And having uh, had the pleasure and privilege of, uh, of leading um, uh, institutions in both of those sectors, uh, um, uh, the current board chair, a man named Scott Miller, put that together in his head and thought, maybe Jay Lemons. And so I'm now finishing my fifth year at, at Academic Search, and I found it to be incredibly meaningful and important work. So more than you may have wanted there. No, Jay, it's perfect. Thank you. And uh, growing up in New Jersey, I should call out, I think in the 90s, I made my way to a basketball camp at Susquehanna. So we're going to have to we're gonna have to have a post-podcast chat about this. You, I, I, I'm, you're not a Morristown guy then, are you? Or a Mendham? Oh, you figured me out. The podcast is over. <laughs> that was pretty amazing how he just did that. All right. So, Jay, we're going to talk more afterwards, but we're also fortunate today to have with us Mr. Ken Kring. Uh, Ken heads up the Globe Education Practice at Corn Ferry, uh, one of the largest recruiting companies in the United States. Ken, you got to tell us a little bit more about yourself, my friend. Well, good. No, thanks, Hirsch. And I was delighted to be asked uh, to join this conversation. Um, EAB is a really terrific um, organization. The idea of a, of a podcast to talk about issues that matter uh, felt uh, important and uh, like a real invitation. It also was great to be able to um, join with Jay, uh, whose reputation I know well, and we are I don't know whether I'd say competitors, but I'd say sort of uh, live it. We live in the same we live in the same world, and we frankly have taken different pathways to get to some very similar uh, places. So it's with a lot of uh, mutual respect that I think this conversation feels like it will unfold uh, really nicely. Uh, I've been at Corn Ferry for fifteen years. Uh, Corn Ferry, the higher education practice, is. Uh, a boutique, a small, a relatively small boutique in a in a relatively large human resources, human capital, um, uh, talent uh, firm. Um, the higher education practice has been in existence for thirty or so years. Um, my career in executive search, which is basically my entire career, uh, first half was on the commercial uh, side. I stumbled into higher education uh, twenty years ago when. I was running a major office for a major firm and was sort of the last of the roving generalists doing a little bit of one thing or another. And it was to Jay's point about um, academic search being very early pioneering search. There wasn't a lot of the use of intermediation for searches. Um, I was hired almost at the same time to do a president search for the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia and a bolt-on to the search for Wharton for their the first time they were using a search firm to do a, a search. And it was a perfect combination for me because I was um, 
I had a, a master's in public and private management, sort of a business kind of degree. A lot of my career had been in finance and administration, and uh, it sort of it, it sort of launched my career. So I was a bit of a fly in the enemy camp at first because I was not an educator per se. I was a product of uh, educators. My parents were educators. Um, I had an advanced degree in uh, public and private management that focused on groups and group dynamics, which as uh, Jay and I will talk is a lot of what we do is working with committee oriented uh, processes. Um, so it became sort of a nat natural launch pad. When Corn Ferry came to me 15 years ago and said, we want to begin to jumpstart this practice. We'd love to be able to leverage some of our resources across different um, uh, uh, dimensions, but also to have a presence sort of where you've had a presence. That was kind of an invitation and I've, uh, I haven't looked back since. I love it. Ken, I, I also come from a family of educators. Both parents were professors. One stayed faculty, the other went more administration. You can imagine our dinner table conversations in the 80s and 90s were entertaining, we'll put it that way. Um, it's great to have you both with us today. And we have a lot to cover. I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna kick things off. Ken, you, you hinted at this, and, and you and I were talking about this uh, in, in, in one of our prior conversations. Uh, you mentioned that one of the reasons search committees struggle with presidential succession planning is that until very recently, they really didn't have to do it very often. How much of your job today involves educating search committees on what works and what doesn't. And, and keep in mind today, today's tighter labor market. Like it's just a tougher time. Can you speak a bit about this? Yeah, so you know, terms are getting shorter and the use of outside intermediation is getting greater and job requirements are getting more difficult, harder. And you know, even at the top of the organizational food chain, um, the pools are getting more resistant and smaller. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's more, it is definitely more uh, complicated. Search committees, you know, on some level are seen as, or see themselves as risk mitigation for the institution and are often not uh, risk takers as a, as a body. And so, um, yes, a lot of what we do is, uh, I won't say educate search committees, I'll say help, help them educate themselves, um, really facilitate them going through a process where they can um, kind of expand their, you know, expand their, uh, their understanding and expand their imagination about what ideal looks like, what success may look like. You hint at, and I like how you, you, verbiage matters, right? Facilitation. And, and Jay, actually, I want to get your take on this too. I like Ken's points. Uh, Jay, kind of the other side of it, you had, as you mentioned, tenure as uh, president Susquehanna, and you have a unique perspective. You are uniquely qualified to speak to how universities grapple with change. And that's something that, right, not all institutions are always comfortable with change. Uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see in terms of how uh, they go about either grooming the next generation of leaders or potentially looking outside the university uh, to find that agent of change. Well, let me uh, let me maybe tie a little. I'm going to tack a little more closely to Ken's comments um, for a moment. Um, first of all, I would say 
higher education does succession planning poorly. It almost does not exist. If you believe that when you um, have the, the reality of a vacancy in the president's office, that it's time to begin succession planning, you've totally missed the boat. Too late. And, um, and it's also related to the really unusual, and I happen to believe strongly in this, unusual cultural context um, where um, shared governance is um, sort of um, a, a sacred uh, dimension of the, of the culture of the academy. So it makes succession planning hard. Um, over the last five years, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to try and tilt at that just a bit, but to try and encourage uh, it, it will never look like it looks in the corporate world. And that's sure. okay. I don't apologize for that. It can't really look like that. And yet I, you know, I start from a perspective of, I really frankly want to, um, uh, you know, can't always choose, but if given my choice, I want boards and CEOs to have open and trusting enough relationships where on an annual basis, that board, those board leaders are sitting, you know, with their president and asking, um, you know, Madam President, how long, how are you feeling about the work you're doing? Are you still finding joy? What are you thinking about your time horizon? Having the sort of conversations that help to sort of have, be clarified for both parties in terms of an understanding about the arc of the career. Because I think that's, about as close as we can get to it. And um, I have been I'm doing some things that probably may not make sense in Ken's world because I'm finding they're very labor intensive. And in an emission-based environment, I'm able to do some experimentation that you might not be able to in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the commercial um, world. So, I, you know, I've been, um, I've been encouraging where possible boards to think uh, and, and if you have a long-serving president, because to Ken's point, there are terms are shorter. Um, we'll we'll get another data draw, um, uh, you know, coming out probably early next year from ACE, and it's about every five-year study of the American College presidency. I'll be shocked if we don't see that the average tenure is is shrunk yet again. It's you know somewhere in the neighborhood of five years and a fraction. So I, I really think the more that we can do that could open up, um, you know, uh, honest conversation. Now there's some risk in that um, for leaders. And if you are in a politically charged environment, there may be reasons why you can't have those sorts of conversations, but where you can, um, I think that uh, it provides opportunities and, and I'm sure Ken has these engagements as well. It is far better for us to be talking with a board before there's an announcement of a public vacancy because yeah. we can help them to be prepared for how to begin this journey and this process um, and it not be a fire drill because there often is a great deal of public interest and frankly pressure for um, uh, moving a process along. And so I, I, I just stop there and say, I think that's, maybe one of the biggest mistakes. Yeah. Jay, such a good point. And you actually, you brought up a couple topics that I, I might return to um, 
you know, it's a provocative time. Um, succession planning, there's probably a debate over promoting from within versus bringing folks in from the outside. Ken, I, I don't know if you have a reaction to, to Jay's uh, comments. I have a couple more questions for the two of you, but Ken, any other reactions there? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a bit of a contrarian perspective, but um, we really should be seeing more internal candidates. We really, there really should be. The, the academic sector would be stronger if it did better internal succession planning. And frankly, contrary to, you know, sometimes popular assumption, we are uh, both pleased to see internal candidates in searches and concerned when there aren't internal candidates because it's indicative of, of something. So, um, yeah, Jay, I, I really like your point, sort of getting to, you know, getting to those boards early to do that succession planning. And by the way, it is di it is difficult, not just because of shared governance, but because the uh, president of a college or university reports to a, a board and alerting them that, you know, two years from now, I will be ready to uh, leave is too early to let them know for your own well-being. So, um, I mean, we have at Corn Ferry an entire uh, uh, succession planning practice. Ironically, um, uh, our higher ed practice has had a very difficult time uh, building up, you know, any repository of experience within that within that sub practice of you know, across the entire spectrum of other industries. No, you're you're exactly right, um, uh, Ken. Um, and in in I would say, um, uh, you know, so where do you see this space? Where do I see this space? Um, I think about David Anderson, who announced two years um, before he was to go um, uh, from Saint Olaf, um, long term, long serving president. Um, you know, uh, I, 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 there are there are plenty of other um, uh, you know opportunities for me to think about some examples of of, of exceptions um, uh, to this. Um, you know, but but it, they're they're really they really are the exceptions. So you know, the other one that pops to my mind is Lyle Roloff's at Berea um, gave two years of full notice. You don't see that in the in the highest profile, um, especially public flagship um, uh, uh, campuses, where um, the, the 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 nature of the boards really dictates some of that. But yeah, I I um, I, I really um, I I love this as a topic. Again, it's something to tilt at, um, and I really appreciate the contrarian view that you gave, Ken. Higher ed is incredibly susceptible to believing that the Messiah is anywhere else but here. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and you know, um, that contributes to um, uh, the challenges. And I feel the same way that um, um, uh, very often, um, you know, great talent is, is, is overlooked. I, I, I will observe in the slice of the markets that I'm working in, Ken, I have not seen um, a paucity of, of top candidates. Mm -hmm. I am working with unbelievable pools mm -hmm. um, in which dozens of people 
um, um, uh, are, are, are qualified and probably any one of them could do the job. Um, and, um, and I'm kind of astounded at that. It's different than in, in uh, a number of, you know, of the line officer jobs. There aren't as many folks yeah. lining up to be CFOs. There aren't as many chief enrollment officers. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, I, if, if we could uh, find the formula there, that would be terrific. But presidencies and chief academic officers, at least um, in, among the CIC and ASCU institutions, I see just incredible talent. I see um, uh, you know, robust numbers of, 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 um, of BIPOC um, and, and diverse candidates. Um, and it's really exciting for me to, to see the emergence of, of new generations of talent. Well, Jay, let me double down there. I, sorry, Ken, I'm cutting in because, Jay, I'm curious, on that last piece, are there qualities or competencies that university presidents need to have today that perhaps weren't as important 10 years ago or even, I don't know, five years ago, two and a half years ago, right? Like before the pandemic. Speak about that because you hinted at the talent, um, any different qualities or competencies. Yeah, I'm, I maybe would say going back you know, I'll, I'll say 25 years, um, closer to the beginning of my career, I would say that um, uh, crisis management was not as high on the list as it is today. And yet, to, to slip to your two and a half year um, uh, note, um, every leader in every industry across this country has had a crash course in crisis management with the pandemic. It's a you know, it's a long um, uh, event rather than a short uh, event. But, um, uh, you know, that's that's an example of one that feels to me like it is it's it's probably got greater prominence um, and priority. It's also the case that the ability to be a change leader is hugely um, more important. And the third one that I would mention is um, the, uh, uh, you know, the ability to be um, uh, 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 in particular, a leader, an advocate, and a model with regard to creating, um, you know, uh, 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 a diverse, equitable, and inclusive um, uh, environment. Those would be the, 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 the so there, there have been major changes in those three areas that I'd mentioned. Very helpful, Jay. Ken, I got another question for you. Search firms, yeah. Over the years, have been accused of conducting a lot of work behind closed doors. Yeah. Some would say uh, the search firms—they'll only reveal a short list of finalists, and it's only towards the end of the process. What about transparency? Invite more opinions and perspectives from across the campus on all these potential candidates. Can you give our listeners a, an idea? Like, why, why is that the case? And is there a perception there that's incorrect? Talk a bit about that. Yeah, I think the, frankly, I think the perception probably um, was part of the earlier stages of uh, search being introduced to higher education and some of the challenges of transferability of business and commercial processes. I think Jay is exactly, I mean, when you say, you know, um, respect for shared governance, you know, I came in from outside of higher education and shared governance kind of 
you know, was a little bit of a headwind for me the first, you know, year, 18 months of searches. And I'm a convert now, you know, recognizing, you know, it might not be great, but it's what is that that quote that Churchill quote, quote might not be great, but but it's uh, but it beats any alternative. Um, uh, I think that shared governance uh, definitely influences the way um, uh, pools of candidates are shared with search committees. Um, uh, we show everything. You know, we show every correspondence we've had with candidates, and it's set up in a proprietary, password-protected database. And search committees are allowed to see, you know, that material. Um, the real challenge is around confidentiality of uh, the process and confidentiality of candidates, sort of to the broader community. And this is where shared governance gets a little uh, complicated because. The unique and I would say um, not always successful aspect of shared governance is um, on some level, you're asking, you know, far flung members, stakeholders in a community to select their next their next leader. And it's a you know, I mean, it's it's predicting performance is um, uh, impossible anyway to set up systems in which um, uh, people from far-flung parts of a community are actually weighing in on the selection of a, of a, uh, a leader uh, can really get yourself into um, uh, uh, chaos. And so the, the challenge is creating a process that is inclusive and representative and we've seen sort of the increase in size of search committees, therefore, um, uh, uh, prolonging. And this is, you know, to Jay's point about, you know, before the search becomes, uh, you know, before it becomes uh, uh, necessary and imminent, uh, prolonging those uh, early phases, including, you know, sufficient listening sessions, gathering in that. Uh, information actually assimilating and synthesizing some of the listening sessions, you know, building a position description that is bought and candidate specification that is really bought in by the entire search committee, and frankly, indulging in some of that conversation to be sure that there's real alignment around um, not just the way you know the institution is described, but the you know the priorities are described and the competencies are are described, so that you go into uh, uh, this with transparency around values and and priorities. I think the other place that's interesting and complicated is the end decision and sort of how are candidates seen and experienced. And, and frankly, I think, um, and Jason, we're in slightly different uh, worlds, you know, you, we, we both have information on this. I am seeing there being a um, uh, return to more public exposure at the conclusion uh, with a more hybrid exposure with confidentiality insisted upon. And so we're seeing candidates seen off campus by you know, additional stakeholders beyond the search committee with signed confidentiality statements with no 
cross chatter between one institution and another. That's the part that, you know, we we defend pretty aggressively is that we can be as open as the candidates can be, and you can be no more open than the most uh, confidentially requiring candidate requires. Um, but, but cross chatter, having, you know, members of the community calling up their peers and other institutions to vet candidates is a, um, you know, is a, is a a degradation of process. Fair points. I think our listeners are going to value that, that last section, Ken, and there are points our listeners can't see the two of you, but I'm fortunate to. So I'm I'm watching Jay nod along in agreement on on several of these points. Jay, let's flip the equation just for a moment. What does a candidate who's considering a senior leadership position need to know about what they're getting themselves into? It's either about the nature of the job or like how to put their best foot forward during the interview process. Perhaps speak to that. Uh, we have listeners who who might wow. be in that position. Well, that's that that's a really broad topic. Um, I, I will tell you that we work all over the country, as as would Ken and all the search organizations. Higher ed search is done differently than um, uh, than the rest of the practice. I am sure at Corn Ferry. Um, uh, so we are just as Ken described the conditions around what we do with regard to the building of candidate materials and, and, and protected portal sites and so forth, all of that. Um, but you know, the candidates get all, uh, excuse me, the search committees get all the candidates that we work with. But you work all over the country. There are varying levels of sunshine that are required depending on the state that you live in. Um, and so you, um, if you're working in a public institution search, you have to be guided first and foremost by that. Um, but I, I will, I often say to search committees, we are agnostic with regard to how you will do the search, but I would feel as if I were not, um, uh, serving them well, if I didn't talk about the, the impacts that that will have on this, on the pool of candidates that they will have. And, and I really appreciated the, the comments about, you know, confidentiality. Um, by the way, this is another major change um, in terms of, of competencies over time. Um, 25 years ago, social media did not exist. Um, instantaneous, um, you know, um, uh, uh, surveillance from every single member of a campus community. It has made it harder and harder. And it is, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to develop the strongest pool of candidates if you are required to have an open search. I personally do not think that that smacks up against um, uh, shared governance. It's, you, you gotta, it's back to what Ken said. It's why we have larger search committees and they're, they're more representative of the constituencies. It's why the work you do in a pre-search assessment process is really, really critical. But in what other human endeavor of leading large organizations, does everybody who is there believe that they should have a say in who it is that's gonna emerge as the leader? Um, I, 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 uh, I, I have gotten to be a part of a, of a group of a round table of other search professionals who live in other worlds. They cannot imagine 
the world that I'm in, just as I imagine Ken's colleagues at Corn Ferry can't imagine the stuff that he has to go through to work in higher ed. It's really different. Yeah. Well, to that point, Jay, I love that you hit on that. Ken, let me pass the mic to you real quick. Yeah, and Jay, promise you won't tell my other colleagues at Corn Ferry what I go through because they they won't understand. They may not appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, I just wanted to comment on the on the sort of what candidates uh, l- look for. And, and, you know, I would go out on a limb and say, Jay, part of what you're experiencing in terms of the um, robustness of candidates sort of gets to my point, which is, you know, if there is one common denominator across, um, the, you know, the different enterprises within, you know, within uh, our field. It is uh, the motivational aspect for the individual candidate. And that is, without a doubt, the achievable challenge. You know, the, the, most candidates are motivated by the achievable challenge. I mean, most candidates this is their might be their penultimate career move, but they think it's their last move. They're 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 ready for this as their as their last move. And so, what attracts them? It's it's a, a challenge that they can put their own imprimatur on that they can actually be successful. And frankly, a lot of what we do, and this is not a sales job, this is a counseling job with candidates to help them think about whether this is the achievable challenge. So our necessity of understanding the opportunity, including the challenges, uh, the, the, you know, the potential pitfalls, the, um, the sort of what is across the threshold for a candidate is all oriented around being able to communicate with them what that achievable challenge might look like. Absolutely well said. It's, it's, uh, it's, I love the way you phrased it. Um, I always begin each engagement of what does the leader in the next for the next five to 10 years need to do um, to be successful. And it is around that achievable goal and right. having affinity for mission. And um, um, and then, you know, you see uh, you, you see how the variables fit together for across, um, you know, dozens of people. Gentlemen, I'm going to pivot quickly to. Well, on Office Hours, the EAB podcast, just uh, recently, we had the editor of Inside Higher Ed join us. And Scott said that schools in red states are finding it harder than years past to attract top candidates for senior leadership positions. And that could be due to fears about the local political climate and how that might impact their ability to conduct general business of the university. There's also the other side of it, candidates who may be more left-leaning, and let's call it what it is, people who work in higher ed may lean at least a little to the left. They may not be comfortable with the idea of moving themselves and their families to a community where they may feel like an outsider. Jay, I want to start with you. Are you running into this issue at all, kind of the political, provocative nature of it all? I, I, I You know, this is partly why Scott is, is so good at what he does. But I think it oversimplifies. I think that there is far greater um, diversity in in every zip code than we might imagine. Um, and um, will um, you know uh, the particularities around what is uh, 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 
uh, reported in the national media as the as the context of a of a region or of a state impact some people's thinking absolutely you know some people um uh, uh, only uh, you know we we are pretty bicoastally focused in this country and there are a lot of great institutions and a lot more diversity um, in uh, in flyover country than I think um, people often give credit so I and the, the exception to that is, um, uh, you know, and a worry that I have, that I've had my entire career, um, especially when I served in public higher education, was um, how politicized um, uh, the, uh, the, the public higher education governance system can be. Some places, um, uh, these can be really challenging circumstances for leaders. And we see that. Um, uh, and I won't, I won't name names, but you can, you, there's a fairly regular routine set of transitions that you can almost mark down by clockwork um, um, uh, that, that, that reflect governance um, systems that are at, at, the, at the board level that are challenging. So I, I, more than you wanted there. No, it's helpful. Well, and Ken, I mean, what are you hearing from schools on this topic? And could the reverse also be true to some extent? Like, are schools and communities too liberal to attract top talent? I, I, what, what are you hearing on, on this side of it, Ken? No, I, 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 I don't think I can add to, Jay, to your point. You know, I, I think that um, there are some, um, there are some particular situations that are um, uh, extremely um, either volatile or potentially volatile around politics, particularly in uh, public, particularly in either elected, but even more so in appointed governance. Um, and those can be, you know, you know, primarily at major, you know, uh, state universities and land grant institutions. Um, that gets really, really complicated, and it's particular because it depends on who's on that, you know, who's in the governance system at any moment in time. And frankly, the separation between um, uh, governance and shared governance can be can be a pretty scary chasm, but um, I don't know that I can draw the line around red or blue states, purple states, or geographies per se. I think it's more particular than that. No, it's a fair point. And this is my attempt at being provocative or spicy. I am the guy who hosted uh, one of these podcasts where we spoke about hot sauce with the president. So yeah. there you have it. Um, guys, we could we could spend like a whole afternoon on one of these topics and still only scratch the surface. Jay, I think you hinted at that earlier, but I need to be respectful of your time. But before we go, maybe could each of you offer your best advice to an institution that's just forming up a search committee? They know they know they're going to be looking for that that talent. Um, Ken, why don't you start us off? What advice might you bestow upon them? So. I would say um, enter, you know, enter with an open mind. Control your group hubris. Um, you know, achieve some level of humility. Learn as much as you can by parking your biases and preconceived notions early. 
and work effectively as a group to, I mean, I think that search committees have the opportunity to put forward uh, without selection, unranked list of you know, excellent candidates who are not in competition with one another, but represent different uh, perspectives and different strategic objectives. And so for committees to sort of embrace that mission and embrace that charge early and work with it can, can, can lead to much better outcomes. Excellent, Ken. And Jay, um, what would be your best piece of advice for university leaders on how to conduct a proper executive search? Well, I think I'll go back to where I started open, honest conversation, um, engaging um, a trusted um, uh, partner and advisor in a, in a search organization earlier rather than later, and trusting the process, following it all the way through. Um, there are plenty of shiny objects and plenty of ups and downs and, and uh, detours, but if you stay true to the process, I believe if done well, um, a, a presidential search, whether it's open or closed, is an incredible learning experience for the people who are involved. It can strengthen shared governance because it's the only place, it's the only time, uh, it's the only location where trustees, faculty, staff, students, alumni, sometimes community leaders all come together and they have the opportunity to talk to lots of really smart people. And they learn a lot about their institution. They build relationships with one another. And they only get to pick one president. And, um, and, and so I trust a process would be my, my most important piece of advice. Gentlemen, this is great. I want to thank both of you so much uh, for taking the time today. I also want to take a second to give a quick plug. I mentioned it earlier, EAB's new executive intensives program. Uh, think of this like a weekly virtual boot camp, if you will. It's designed to help and support incoming higher ed leaders uh, in, in making a successful transition into office and quickly understanding key opportunities, challenges ahead. Uh, I'll ask our producer at EAB to include a link to that program uh, webpage in the episode description for anyone who wants to learn more. But I'm humbled that we had Jay and Ken here. And guys, thank you so much. I'm, I'm once again, on behalf of, of both of you and the EAB team, I want to thank all of our listeners for, for joining us today. Um, we'll see you next time on Office Hours with EAB. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we take a deep dive into what's going on in the master's and graduate degree markets. Until then, thank you for your time.